Hello and welcome to episode 2115 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Where do you stand on naming pitches that are subsets of other types <sighs> of pitches? <laughs> you have some thoughts on this, right? This became yeah. a big issue for some reason, especially during the postseason when everyone was talking about sweepers. Right. And some people were upset because I guess the idea that the sweeper was something new as opposed to something that had always existed mm-hmm. but was now named and classified mm-hmm. and pursued more actively. Mm -hmm. I ask because I was reading a good explainer at Baseball Prospectus this week by Brian Menendez about the death ball, Mm. which is the new sweeper, (laughs) essentially, the new hotness, the new breaking ball variant. The sweeper is a kind of slider. The death ball is a kind of curve. I will explain the death ball, but tell me what you think of this in principle. Okay, I'm so glad that you asked um, because I have a lot of thoughts about it. Actually, Mm -hmm. I don't. I have some thoughts that I have a lot of conviction in. I mean, it is useful to have specific and distinct terminology for pitches that are sufficiently different from one another that it adds explanatory power, sort of conjures a particular image of a pitch, right? To say, this is a sweeper versus just a regular slider. Mm Mm-hmm. Will you allow me a a brief digression, a (laughs) cul-de-sac on the sweeper conversation? (laughs) Of of course. Okay, so here's the thing about the grumpiness in the postseason. I'm off two minds about it because on the one hand, I think some of it was like stuck in the mudness, right? Like, what is the platonic ideal of a sweeper to me? When I think of a sweeper, I think of the pitch that Blake Trinan throws, right? Like Mm -hmm. that to me is a sweeper. That is a different animal than a standard slider. And I think that calling it a sweeper versus a standard slider allows you to conjure like an image of of Blake Trinan's slider, of a sweepier slider, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's value in that. And some of the resistance that the postseason booths, and not all of the booths, right? Not all of them. (laughs) And not all of the people in the booths that had objections to sweepers. Like, let us not paint with too broad a brush. But I think some of it was stuck in the mudness where there was a, a refusal to acknowledge just how meaningful a difference the one had versus the other, and and that's not good. I also think, Ben, I'm here to say, we mm-hmm. have some sweeper creep, you know? Yeah. Some of these sweepers are just sliders. Like, they're just sliders. They're just, they're just mm-hmm. sliders, Ben. They're just yeah. normal sliders. They're not Blake Trinan sweeper. They're not a whirly, right, mm-hmm. which is what the Yankees kind of used to, yep. to differentiate these pitches from other sliders, right? They're just sliders. <laughs> you know, we could just call them sliders. Like, mm-hmm. have some... You need to have precision because the whole point of having a separate name for that kind of pitch is that it's different and that you want when you're talking to a fan um, or another baseball person to say, well, he's throwing a sweeper, really. And then you go, okay, and you have an image in your mind about the way that the ball moves in the zone and the action that it's getting. So I think that it's good to have distinct names for things and to Mm -hmm. use that to help us 
sort of conjure a mental image of a particular pitch, right? We have this overarching category of breaking balls, but within, like, imagine if we only call them breaking balls. There are a couple different kinds right. of breaking balls. Sure. It's useful to be able to say that you mean one versus the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because how they're deployed is going to be different, who they're thrown to, by whom, in what circumstances, right? And so I think that, I think it's useful, but I think to counterbalance that point, that there needs to be like a a meaningful difference between those pitches, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get a little loose and the, the differences are porous and we could simply call that pitch a slider. And if it's a little bit different, but not like sweeper different, then we can talk about how it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that has explanatory power too. So um, <laughs> I I think that, I think that the, the thing you should be in service of is having greater explanatory power yeah. and helping people conjure an image of the particular pitch. And I, I think also a third thing I think (laughs) that maybe contradicts both of the prior points that I made is that it is fun to have like, to have like cool names, right? To have like names that have like a little flavor to them, right? That Mm -hmm. they've been zhuzhed up a little bit, right? Like imagine if we were so staid that we didn't have room for the Uncle Charlie in our Mm -hmm. pitch vernacular. That would be. That'd be travesty. That'd be so sad. When you're a writer, you want all these words so that you don't have to keep repeating them because that gets tiresome in copy. So, yeah. you know, I I want to try to keep all of those goals sort of in balance with one another. I do want to put my foot down on sweeper creep and not just because it's really <laughs> fun to say sweeper creep. I know. I wanted to come up with some combined portmanteau of sweeper creep and then I realized that it would just be sweeper right. <laughs> if you combined those things probably right. yeah. or sweep. But yeah, I am kind of glad that there was that controversy about it during the postseason because it helped bring Brent Rooker to my attention, our recent guest, because he was tweeting about it a lot. And I agree with your points there. And so a sweeper, if there is any lingering confusion, I think we could say that all sweepers are sliders, but not all sliders are sweepers, right? So it's a a form of slider. And then the question becomes, well, do you break it out entirely from slider? Baseball savant, other sources might just classify a sweeper as a sweeper, not as a slider at all. It's just broken out into a different pitch type altogether, which I think maybe creates the impression that it is entirely different. It's not just a different point on the spectrum from a traditional slider. And yet there's some analytical value to doing that too. It's almost like, does it aid comprehensibility for a general audience or does it aid comprehensibility for a sabermetric minded data analyst audience, right? It's, It's two different audiences. I think it could be helpful for people who are analyzing pitchers to separate it into its own category, but right. then maybe it's misleading, at least at first, for a general audience that's maybe being exposed to it for the first time on a national postseason broadcast and is going, sure. wait, is it a different pitch? Is it just a form of this pitch? Is this brand new? Because that's the other way that it's often right. talked about. It's like, yeah. oh, teams are teaching everyone sweepers, and that's true. It's not that they necessarily just invented the sweeper out of no. whole cloth. No one ever threw a sweeper before. It's just that we have a classification for it now. And once you name something, sometimes it's easier to 
teach it, right? And right. to say this is a discrete thing that we can teach our pitchers to do, and then they can aim for the characteristics of that sweeper. But you might have heard this called a frisbee slider mm-hmm. in the past, right? People threw it. It just it wasn't the it pitch, right? It wasn't right. the hot progressive team player development pitch. It's just a slider with a large amount of horizontal movement, less of a tight break. It sweeps across the strike zone, as the name would suggest. It's a little slower. It induces weak contact and pop-ups. So I think it can be explanatory and clarifying, and it can be confusing. But maybe it's only confusing because it's somewhat new, or at least this idea, the concept is kind of new. So, you know, when a curveball or a slider itself was new, maybe that was kind of confusing. And then we all learned what that meant. And now it's a subdivision of a slider. And then it becomes a question of, well, do we include it under the umbrella of slider or do we just split it out into its own thing? Because it could be arbitrary, right? I mean, you can draw a line anywhere. All these pitches are sort of on a spectrum of speed and movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have your sliders and your cutters and your slurves and your curves and slutters and slurves. And, you know, it's hard to really draw a line unless you are doing some kind of pitch classification or data analysis. And then you can say, well, it moves this much or that much or doesn't move more than that. And then you can draw a bright line. But in reality, there isn't really a line, you know, it's just we decide where to set that. I mean, I think that another element to the sweeper conversation in the postseason, too, is that I don't want to impugn anyone in particular. But like, I think that um, folks who are doing broadcasts throughout the regular season with greater regularity are more comfortable with a sweeper because they've been talking about it every day in the booth, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's that part. I mean, I like the way that, so Savant has updated their search tool. Mm -hmm. I think that it's laid out, like, this is the way that I would do it. So, of course, I like it. (laughs) But if you go into pitch type, they group them, right? And they break them down into subgroups. So, you have, like, all of your fastball variants, right? You know, just your traditional four-seamer, two-seamer cutter. Then you have all your off-speed pitches, right? And then in the breaking group, they have a curveball group and a slider group and then Mm -hmm. knuckleballs and ephesis because they just get thrown so infrequently. And so, within the... I think that if you were unsure of what a sweeper looked like, you would be able to look at this and be like, oh, it's a variant of a slider. Now, if you're using the Savant search tool, do you really need to know that? Like, are you needing the mm-hmm. the pitch type groupings to inform you of that? Probably not, right? right. You, you know, who's going to the StatCast search if they're not deep in the weeds already? But I think that, like, this sort of is in line with the way that I would think about it from a data presentation perspective. So I I think it's, you know, I think it's good. I think it's good. I find these new names somewhat underwhelming because I always want them to be an entirely new creation that just has never been seen before, right? Remember when Daisuke Matsuzaka came over to the majors and everyone was talking about the gyro ball and there was a lot of mystique, uh, what is this pitch? And it was uh, whispered about and reported on as if it was this entirely new entity that had never been seen or thrown before or defied physics or whatever. And 
most of these new names and classifications, they're not something that no one has ever thrown before. We're just classifying it. We're giving it a name and dividing that group a little bit. So I don't know if there is such a thing as just a new pitch, an entirely new pitch that has never been thrown. I feel like maybe they've thrown all the kinds of pitches it's possible to throw, although I guess they would have said that at earlier points in baseball history. But I always want it to mean, oh, wow, a death ball. This is just something we've never seen before. But really, it's just a kind of an existing pitch that probably has been thrown for a very long time. It just wasn't known or (laughs) called a a death ball, right? So the the death ball itself, I'll, I'll play a quick clip that explains it. This is Tyler Zombro of Tread Athletics. So the the death ball is kind of a creation of Tread, or at least has been popularized by Tread and Tread pitchers. This is the data-driven player development facility in Charlotte, kind of a driveline east where former Effectively Wild guest Declan Cronin has worked as an instructor in addition to a professional pitcher. And you're probably going to be hearing about the death ball a lot because Jordan Montgomery throws Mm. it. And this led to its initial exposure again in the postseason last year. He threw the death ball and it got the better of Jordan Alvarez in game one of the ALCS when he struck out Jordan three times. He was the giant killer. He threw him death balls and... Jordan said that he just looked like a fastball out of the hand and the angle at which he releases it makes it more difficult to pick up, right? So here's a quick clip of Tyler Zombro, who works at Tread where Montgomery has trained and where that pitch was named. Here's him explaining it. The unique part about this pitch is that it's not a high efficiency curveball. So we're not going to have that traditional topspin. It's going to be more gyro oriented. And this is unique for certain guys where they've tried to get to the front of a curveball, but this is more gyro-oriented, stay behind the ball, plays at straight vertical depth, no side to side. This pitch particularly is good for high slot pronators, guys who have really used their release angles to make this pitch play up even more. And here is Brian Menendez at BP adding a little bit more information. So he points out, hey, the sweeper has swept. Yes, he makes that joke. The major leagues and that not everyone, though, can throw it or can throw it well because you have to have certain traits to do it well. Most importantly, your arm slot. So if you have a straight over-the-top delivery, then it may be difficult, if not impossible, to get that 45-degree bend to a breaking ball. And so you have to throw a more vertical breaking ball, a hard gyro slider, or a big slow curve ball. But that could be changing because now we have the death ball, which is having its own post-sweeper breakout and could become even more popular. He writes, what seems to make the death ball different from a traditional 12 to 6 curveball is threefold. First is the aforementioned gyro component as these three pitches come in between roughly 30 to 60% active spin with a supinated release, meaning top spin. They're thrown harder, presumably because of the gyro component. So let's say above 80 miles per hour. And then there's some seam shifted wake effects as well. And so there's a, a deviation between the spin-based movement, how you think it's going to move based on the spin and the actual movement, which surprises hitters because they're not used to seeing this particular pitch profile that much. And the gyro spin pulls the ball back to the bottom of the clock if you're using a clock to represent the spin. And there's a layer of deception for the hitter. So it's like a sweeper in that way. It has an atypical shape relative to the arm angle of the pitcher. 
And so the hitter is confused, at least the first several times they see this. Once everyone's throwing a sweeper, then maybe not so much. Maybe the effectiveness wears off a little bit and it is subject to large platoon splits too. So all of these pitches, there's a familiarity or unfamiliarity effect where as it becomes more common, maybe it becomes less effective on a league-wide level. So Brian says maybe this will be the pitch that blows up in 2024 so that you have downward vertical movement without the loopiness and airiness of a traditional 12 to 6 curveball. Call it a death ball, call it an anti-sweeper, but whatever it is, it looks to be here to stay. Now, one critique I would have is that if this is going to become a common thing that we're going to need to know the name of, I don't think death ball works. Death ball sounds cool. I mean, it sounds cool, but it doesn't tell you anything about the movement of the pitch. If I just said death ball, you might know, you might divine that it's effective, that it's death on hitters, presumably, but it tells you nothing about what type of pitch it is, right? I mean, a sweeper is very descriptive and so is cutter and and slider and curveball and fastball. We call them these things because they describe pretty efficiently in one word how they move. Whereas death ball, when I saw the term death ball, I had no idea what that meant. Now, I did think it sounded kind of cool. <laughs> so if I, yeah. if I threw a death ball, I, I would probably want to call it a death ball too. It sounds yeah. intimidating. It would pump me up. But yeah. again, from a how is this going to land with the general baseball audience perspective, now they might think it's kind of a cool name too. But yeah. you'd, you'd then have to explain what sure. is a death ball because yeah. Yeah, it tells you nothing. I think that's fine, though. I think we can have a little death ball as a treat. Okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the question is then, okay, so do we now need to know what a death ball is? Are we going to be hearing about death balls constantly when Montgomery signs? Will we be hearing about the death ball? And will we then have to have a separate pitch classification for the death ball? I guess it's fine to do that, especially from an analytical perspective, anything that adds value in that perspective, I'm not against, but ultimately how many subdivisions and subclassifications are you going to end up with if we have variants of sliders and subsets of sliders and curves and, you know, you already have like sinkers as a kind of a fastball, a two-seamer, a four-seamer, right? So... I guess there's precedent for that. And if we have a couple kinds of curveballs and a couple kinds of sliders and a couple kinds of fastballs, that's not the worst thing in the world, Mm -hmm. probably. But it is a lot you need to know. So Jordan Montgomery throws a death ball. Pete Fairbanks throws a death ball. Is that why he looks so nervous? (laughs) Maybe Alex Lang of the Tigers throws a, a death ball. And Brian in his piece, like, looks up basically the parameters as defined by tread of the death ball and finds a bunch of other pitchers who technically speaking probably throw a death ball but might not know it by that name might not call it a death ball we're just applying that label which is another added wrinkle of complication to this is that there's always the debate about do we call it what it is based on how it behaves and how we understand pitches that behave a certain way to be called or do we call it what the pitcher calls it which sometimes is a different matter entirely right oh i have so many more thoughts now (laughs) um 
you've hit on one of the important criteria for me that need to be needs to be checked off before like a, a subclassification really gets acknowledged to the point that it might like appear in a savant search, which is are a lot of guys throwing it? And do a lot of guys understand themselves to be throwing that pitch, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if Jordan Montgomery, I don't, I'm not trying to denigrate the most nervous boy in baseball, Pete Fairbanks, <laughs> he just looks so nervous all of the time. It's mm-hmm. like, really, I worry about him, you know? I don't know him, but I, like, worry about him. Anyway... If it's just Jordan Montgomery, right, then I think you wait. You wait until both there are a lot of people who are like, I am throwing this variant of a variant. We need a new word of a curveball. It's the death ball. It's like Jordan Montgomery's. It's like Pete Fairbanks, but less nervous, you know. I think that that's important. I also am sensitive to the fact, and I don't say this to knock tread, because I think that like... I enjoy Tread. Like, I appreciate Tread's, um, like, YouTube and stuff. I think that Mm -hmm. you can learn stuff watching that. I also am conscious of the fact that, like, part of this is marketing on Tread's part, right? Like, Tread... Brand the pitch, brand your your facility. Yeah. And and so maybe I actually think we should not have a little bit of Death Ball as a treat because (laughs) I don't know that we, you know, need to see seed ground to to marketing right which again is not a knock on tread it seems like they do good work a lot of people have come out of there better as pitchers uh, as a result of working with those guys but i don't know if we need to like enshrine that m- marketing right like mm-hmm. it's not they're not q-tips right <laughs> some uh, sometimes ben you just are like look i understand that there are a lot of kinds of facial tissue but if i say kleenex people know what i mean right mm-hmm. um if i say q-tip you know what I, I love that on the back of q-tips they're like don't put it in your ear and i'm like everybody puts these in their ears the, the entire reason anyone buys them is to put them in their ears yes <laughs> legal I mean, disclaimer push. don't use our product in a way that it could injure that you, you even absol- though yeah even though that's exactly how you use it right and yes. you know don't throw pitches that might um exceed your uh, your talent. I think you mm-hmm. need a disclaimer there too. But um, a, a death ball isn't a Q-tip, Ben. You know, it's just not. Mm-hmm. It's not a Q-tip. And to your point, it's not really telling us anything about the pitch itself. And now that I'm conceptualizing that as marketing, because Tread wants a thing that like makes them sound badass, mm-hmm. maybe I'm a little less inclined to seed that ground. But I, I think that in general, it's fine for us to have one, exactly one pitch that is known by a fun name as its mm-hmm. primary name, yeah. but only one. And I, do we yeah. want to spend that on the death ball? I don't know. We <laughs> gotta. I think we can have a little fun again as a treat. But is this the treat we want? I mean, yeah. sometimes you're like, I want dessert, and all I have is this chocolate. And then you eat the chocolate, and you're like, well, that wasn't really what I wanted. I still want dessert, and I feel like sugar gross. You know, <laughs> it's like that. I like it. Like it when individual pitchers have a named pitch, but it, it's not necessarily that their pitch is different from any other pitch anyone else throws. Right. It's just that they have a really good one, right? Like, right. you know, Vin Scully calling Clayton Kershaw's curve public enemy number one when he right. first came up. That was cool, right? It wasn't like, oh, no one else throws this pitch. It's just that this is or was at the time a signature pitch for him and it's really right. effective. And so we're going to give it a name. I like that. Yeah. But this is a little different if it's a right. whole classification that applies to multiple pitchers. 
I think the word for what you were talking about is genericization when mm. Kleenex or Xerox becomes Xerox, just the brand yeah. becomes synonymous with a whole category of thing. If you say Google for any search right. engine, just the idea of, of searching you're not a, something you're not online. A bi- you're not a bing man. You're not a, a binger, you know, you don't bing. <laughs> no, I don't bing. I love that I was like, I have one thought and then I managed to turn around and have a completely different thought by the yeah. end of my conversation there. But I'm a, I'm a duck, um, duck go guy sometimes. Oh, okay. How do you, you, find, you like DuckDuckGo? Google's just so much worse than it used to be. It's like, yeah. and I feel like an old person saying that, but there was like reporting on this question and like academic research on it. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Um, That's not the point though. The point, I, I don't say Xerox. I say copy machine. That one hasn't permeated for mm. me. Um, okay. But like Ziploc bag, you know, yep. I say Ziploc bag, not sandwich bag. I could just say sandwich bag. Sandwich bag is more descriptive actually. Mm-hmm. Because it tells you something about the size. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so anyway. get used to the death ball, apparently, but understand I mean, maybe. what it means. Yeah, th- there's a comment on Brian's piece at BP where someone said, I love all these new pitch names. It's like we're in a veritable 1930s to 1950s of pitching innovation again. And that's true to an extent, but not quite to the same extent. I don't know that we're inventing new pitches. We're mm. inventing classifications. And once we have those classifications, we can then instruct pitchers to throw those things and target that type of movement. Yeah. And I think it's obviously very valuable to understand the characteristics of a pitcher that are conducive to a certain pitch type. So sure. you can say, hey, look at your arm action. Look at your release angle. Right. You're a good candidate for this pitch, right? right. And then maybe if that pitch has a name, then you can show them, here's Tyler Glasnow throwing a death ball. Look how it works for him, right? So I get it from that perspective, but I think it can be kind of confusing and misleading as well if it's in the wrong hands. Yeah, well, and like to, it's so funny that the thing that you think of is like Ben Scully talking about Kershaw because the the whole idea there of naming the pitch was that no one else threw it that way, right? Mm-hmm. That there was something superlative and distinctive about Kershaw's deployment of that pitch that merited its own special designation that no one else would have access to, right? It's not like, you know, Vin was throwing that around willy-nilly, right? It only yeah. applied to Kershaw. So, so I just I took it though to mean like it was a particularly good pitch, right. but it wasn't unique in the sense that no one else threw a pitch of that type. It was just the exemplar. It, it was a particularly good example right. of that kind of pitch. But it, you know, it wasn't like no one else threw that pitch type. Right. But he wouldn't describe anyone else's curveball no. as public yes. enemy number one. That it was, was only reserved. His. Mm-hmm. Right. That was reserved for Kershaw. And so this is maybe a spot where like Jordan Montgomery's interests and treads diverge ever so slightly because if i'm jordan montgomery like i would love it if people only thought of me as the guy who throws the death ball like that's that's marketing goals Mm -hmm. right um scarcity yeah yeah (laughs) you want the death ball ball. you gotta go get jordan montgomery yeah right yeah exactly so and he is still unsigned as we are recording Mm -hmm. so yeah what are they all gonna sign ben what are they all gonna sign 
Sometime soon, one would hope, one would yeah. think. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to hold you responsible <laughs> if they don't. The fact that you were just saying that you felt old uh, saying something, I feel old when I bring this up just because when I read the work of people like Brian or mm-hmm. people like Robert Orr or Mikey Hato, who's been on the show, they both mm-hmm. have, or... Nick Pollock at Pitcher List, you know, others who have sort of been steeped in this era of baseball analysis, Drew Haugen. I mean, I think that when you came up as a baseball writer has an effect on what you're most conversant with. You almost have to attend a continuing education course as a baseball writer because analysis has changed so much and the tools at your disposal have changed so much just in the time that we've been writing, right? And so there are almost distinct generations of baseball analysts where I guess it's not unlike the pre-Moneyball, pre-Saber metrics crowd when that stuff kind of came in and initially there was resistance or there was confusion, puzzlement, mm-hmm. all these new names and acronyms, which now seem standard and obvious, you know, I mean, OBP and OPS and things that people whip, you know, it used to be like anything with an acronym would confuse people and they would complain about baseball being alphabet soup analysis. And then there was pitch FX, and that's kind of when I came in and really started writing professionally. And so we had those tools at our disposal. And now it's just become orders of magnitude more granular and thus more complicated and also potentially more insightful. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't come up with those tools and, and sort of, you know, cut your teeth on that kind of baseball analysis, you might not have the chops for it. You almost have to like audit a course, you know, you have to go back to school and be like, okay, how do I take advantage of this new tool? It's like if if you are steeped in it from the start, it's almost like an immersion course. You know, right. you, you speak that natively, right, as opposed to it being your second and acquired language that you had yeah. to learn. And so I've had to familiarize myself with these concepts, and, and I do understand in theory what they mean. And yet when I read an article like this and it's just full of jargon, right? Sort of yeah. statcast techno babble, which I don't yeah. mean in a derogatory way. You know, they're not making it up. These are right. real concepts with meaning <laughs> and analytical utility, but it's just active spin and spin direction and sure. vertical, vertical and horizontal approach angle and seam shifted wake and pronation and supination. Yeah. It's like to be a great baseball analyst these days, you have to have not only whatever traits you used to have to have and be a clear thinker, but you almost have to be an amateur physicist and yeah. a data analyst and a scout all rolled up into one. You know, it's it's kind of intimidating. Like I don't yeah. in my baseball writing, I don't do that much player specific analysis anymore the way that I used to, maybe more when I was writing for a baseball only site and you'd write right. about oh, this guy is doing something a little bit differently than he used to, and that's why he's been more effective. But if you set out now to evaluate a pitcher in particular, though there's more and more of this information available for hitters as well, it's daunting, you know? You can explain much more, whereas in the past, you were just dealing with output stats, like what happened, how was it recorded in the box score, basically. And then you'd have 
still output stats, but characteristics of the output stats. So not just uh, round out to second, but you know, you, you'd have, uh, yeah, batted ball stats, right? right? So you'd know fly ball, ground ball, and you'd have BABIP and all that sorts of stuff. And that would give you something maybe a step removed from the actual outcome. And now it's just so much more about process and characteristics and independent of the outcome. So whether it's just your expected stats, the way that you hit the ball, the characteristics of your batted ball contact, or the characteristics of your pitch, your pitch quality, right? Right. You don't just have to look at the whiff rate or whatever the outcomes of the pitch were, but how should that pitch behave based on right. how it moves and how it's thrown and your arm angle and all these things, right? And and it just becomes more and more removed from the outcome, which is not to say that it has less analytical use, but it's just it's more removed, I guess, and it's only going to get more removed as yeah. you're evaluating, you know, what's going on in a pitcher's brain or body before the contact is made. How is the pitcher's or hitter's body moving, yeah. right? And, you know, soon, yeah, what's going on with their neurons and their brains as they're making the connection? Should I swing at this or not? You know, so you could trace it back to the instant that the hitter is deciding whether to swing or the pitcher is deciding what pitch to throw. And it becomes increasingly complicated. And so you can get to an answer more easily, I think, or not more easily, but maybe in a more satisfactory way than in the past where we might just say, oh, so-and-so's getting lucky, you know, he has a low BABIP, right? And right. now you just know all the inputs and everything. But but the process now of analyzing a single player, yeah. you're having to do a deep dive. You're having to just comb through so many possible angles of analysis that it becomes almost a more specialized skill set, I guess. Yep. As it has in many other sciences, not just the science of baseball and sabermetrics, but, you know, it's hard to be a lay person and and come up with some revolutionary insight now in any field because of a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked already. And so to push the ball forward, you have to devote your life to that specific area of expertise and inquiry, right? And you have to have a zillion degrees uh, to do that. And there's only a limited number of people who can comprehend the state of analysis, you know? So this applies to all the sciences, but increasingly, I think it comes to apply to baseball and sports as well. Wow. You said a lot of words. (laughs) I don't really have anything to add to that. I agree. I do, you know what makes me feel old Mm -hmm. while we're talking about things? So many of the scoops teens have team jobs now. Oh, yeah. 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 And Mm -hmm. like, they've had team jobs for long enough that they talk about their careers. Mm -hmm. And they're not wrong to, right? That's not a slight. I'm not saying they're being, you know, sassy or uppity or anything like that, like disrespecting their elders. It's like, no, they have careers because they're mm-hmm. not teens anymore. They're like adult people who work in the industry. And I just yes. like, oh, Moses. Yeah. Oh, right. my God. Traditional media members. I mean, you know, Chris Catilla, I remember when he first burst onto the scene and was breaking news in high school, right? And now he's just been a traditional media member for years. He's yeah. a Red Sox beat writer, right? Yeah. I mean, that has happened with a lot of that generation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weird. <laughs> Boy, this is making us sound super old, but I think the important thing is to maintain 
that curiosity even, you know, you don't want to let these things pass you by, I guess, which I think as a fan, I almost identify with all of these concepts yeah. coming in with people who feel like earlier generations of sabermetric writers. It's like, right. this is gobbledygook. This is impenetrable to me. This is not the baseball I grew up understanding. And so if you don't dedicate yourself to understanding the way it works now, not that you can't still enjoy it in the traditional aesthetic way sure. without knowing everything that's going on behind, underneath the surface. But if you do want to know how teams are operating and increasingly how players are operating and thinking about what they do, then there is a lot of specialized knowledge there. So that's exciting, but also can be kind of intimidating. I think, yeah, the important thing is just is not to dismiss it out of hand because you're not familiar with it or you don't initially understand it or it wasn't part of your experience growing up with the sport, be receptive to it, right? What can this teach me? What can I learn from this? I think that is the right attitude to have at least, but it's, it's tough sometimes. Meant to mention Alex Chamberlain too as, as another yeah. writer I think of in that yeah. vein as yeah. uh, someone I need to wrap my brain around whenever he writes something. Yeah. I mean, like, I sometimes feel intimidated when I have to edit those folks, but I think that I, I serve as like a, a useful idiot <laughs> in some respects because it's like I know enough to edit them and I know – and I serve as a good like proxy for the uh, educated end of our audience, right, to be yeah. like, okay, so I I think I know what you mean. Do you mean it the way that I think you do? If the answer is no, let's clarify what this means. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it is incumbent upon writers in that space to at least be clear about who who their audience is. Like, I think it's fine for there to be baseball work and baseball research on the public side that is kind of impenetrable to some readers just because mm -hmm. it's useful to, like, advance our understanding of the game. And it tends to filter down to other writers, right? And so it can, a version of it that is um, more easily comprehensible makes its way to the public eventually, hopefully with yeah. proper work cited. It's mm -hmm. important. But I think that where you run into trouble, and, you know, I think Brian does a good job of this, so I, I, again, not a knock on him, but, like, I think where people get into trouble is sometimes they're a little they're not clear with themselves when they set out to write, like, who is the audience for this piece? Is it people mm -hmm. in R&D groups, really? Or yeah. is it my readership? And yeah. that's where you can get kind of like, what is this supposed to be even? <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas, like, I think that a lot of writers, including all of the folks who you named, like, part of what differentiates their work is that there is, a, I think, a really earnest attempt to make what they're doing comprehensible to Maybe, like, the way that I think about it is, like, the the nerdiest contingent of a nerdy readership, but not mm -hmm. a person running a baseball ops group. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of use in that, too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know. They're also, they're also smart, Ben. Like They are. They are so smart. Yeah. They haven't they haven't read as many books as I have though. So that's probably <laughs> not even true. That's probably not even true. They've just read maybe some different books. Yeah. You know, you've, or you've maybe, maybe some had of more the time same to ones. read books. Just get on a cumulative career basis as opposed to a rate basis. But Yeah, there was yeah. a time where my job was gonna be reading books and then mm -hmm. I was like, eh, I don't know if I wanna be in grad school <laughs> for that long. 
<laughs> All right. A bit of baseball news, a couple signings or seemingly signings. One that is relevant to you and your continuing comeback and takeover of the I free agent contracts understand. over under draft. <laughs> so the Pirates of all teams have signed Aroldis Chapman to a one-year $10.5 million contract. More good news for Meg in the over-under draft because you had the under on MLB Trade Rumors prediction of $24 million. So not only do you get the difference between the 24 and the 10.5, but you get the $10 million bonus. And guess what, Meg? That means that you're winning. I can't you are, believe this. You're winning right now. How you is just this possible? Close the gap. You're winning this thing. I saw someone in the Discord group call you Miracle Meg. I, at this point, am, am kind of rooting for you myself. <laughs> <laughs> you're the other. Is it dog. because I was such a um, because I showed um, my ongoing um, support of democracy and its processes? <laughs> yeah. Is that what allowed me to emerge the hero I think here? So. Yes, lucky underdog. Yeah, you're on the right side of this morally. You you said you would accept defeat, but you might not need to. Wow. <laughs> we'll see because, again, Cody Bellinger still on the board, and that's the big thing. Someone compared this to an election, an American election where, you know, certain precincts report first, right? And so right. one side might be leading, but you know, based on the projections that right. that's going to even out. And so you don't want to fall prey to the misinformation that says, oh, we were winning and, and then they did something nefarious and then there was a comeback. No, it's just that this was not representative of the overall electorate here, electorate, what was counted initially. So it, it could be something similar in that we still have Cody Bellinger waiting in the way. You know, right. all precincts have not reported. No. And once we once we get those Maricopa County Cody Bellinger precincts oh reporting. God, I can't believe I have to roll if they're on the election. Jesus Christ. Maybe maybe that changes things. But at this point, I'm kind of hoping it, it doesn't. I mean, you know, give Cody all the money. I was going to say, as, as opposed to November when you're really pulling for those Maricopa <laughs> votes. Just to name a thing it's, that might it's just, be a thing. It's just the first county Later. that uh, came to my mind. You know? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> It just I so happens. That's for later this year, but presumably Cody Bellinger will sign sometime before election day. So that will go a long way toward the resolution. But hey, you have Blake Snell too. So we'll see which way yeah. this thing goes. But Man. just really an amazing showing by you to have done this well despite the big Otani deficit. And Roldis Chapman going to the Pirates, I guess that's not what people would have projected oh, given the Pirates' competitive state and the state of their payroll. And yeah, I suppose this is not different from what the Royals did last year. The Pirates are hoping history repeats itself here where yeah, if they're yeah, not contending, just trade bait, you know, maybe yeah. they can pick up the next Cole Reagans when they trade Chapman at the deadline. I don't know if, if that trick will work multiple times, although Chapman, I guess, has been traded multiple times and then gone on to win World Series. So maybe someone else will yeah. want to try to do that again. But yeah, it's it's sort of a strange thing if you're the Pirates and you're not really going to spend, except on Aroldis Chapman, like the oh, Orioles, yeah. even st more strangely, not spending except on Craig Kimbrell. But yeah, this certainly seems like it's something done with the deadline in mind. Yeah, it's a weird one. And Bauman wrote about 
this for us, and I think he's right, that like when you look at the percentage of their payroll that Chapman makes up, and it's interesting to me because it's like there were times when, especially during the postseason, he just looked unplayable for Texas, mm-hmm. you know? And I know that his regular season was at least started out better. Um, I mean, it was it was quite good with Kansas City, and his tenure with the Rangers was going better in the early stretch uh than it did later but yeah i was like oh okay oh okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's before you get into like is this the guy you want in the clubhouse like but that's what they did ben you know they decided that that's what they wanted to do and they went out and they they did do that Mm -hmm. do you have thoughts on uh, did he not used to be jonathan brebbia or was he always john brebbia I really don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I, I really was, don't have thoughts. You know? I re- Okay, well, I, no, I only have one thought about this. Um, okay. And I really thought he was Jonathan for a while. Maybe I'm just making this that. like a Mandela effect, of- Berenstein Bears. Your, your John Brebbia was Jonathan Berry. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. But can you conjure an image of, um, of John Brebbia in your mind, Ben? I mean, with with assistance, I I have because no, I probably couldn't have picked John Brebbia out of a lineup. But okay. I have looked him up of late. Have you have you seen the difference? I think he's just always been John Brebbia. I think he's just always been John Brebbia. Have you seen the difference between John Brebbia with and without a beard? <laughs> yes. Okay, it's a big difference. So. Having seen John Brebbia with and without a beard, I now think that we were giving too much flack to the people in the Superman universe who couldn't tell that was Superman because he had glasses mm. on. Because I, they, these are, you know, if if Charlie Culberson and Dan Sweet Swanson are the same boy just moving back and forth really, really fast to give the illusion of two people, this, this is two distinct people. This is two yeah. different humans. Maybe yeah. one of them is named Jonathan, you know? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. One, maybe the clean-shaven yeah. one is Jonathan right. and the... The bearded, uh, bearded one is John. One is John. Yeah. Um, I think he's just always been John, and I don't know why I thought his name was this Jonathan. Is alter ego with a beard. But yeah, I, I think it's more defensible for a big bushy beard to obscure someone's identity than a pair of glasses, just in terms of percentage Two of the face obscured. People. Right. If you have a giant beard like John Brebbia's, I mean, that is literally hiding a large yeah portion of the face, of the, your face, the yeah. area that we used to different identify man. you previously is yeah. now not visible, whereas Entirely different man. <laughs> with glasses, they are by design transparent. And so there's maybe a thinnish frame, right? It, it does change your look, but I, I would argue not quite this much. But yes, I, the White Sox have signed it gave me, John It Brebbia. gave me sympathy, <laughs> though. It gave me sympathy for all of the people yeah. around him who were like, oh, I couldn't possibly tell them apart. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know. I've seen John Brebbia's beard. John, <laughs> yeah. not John. <laughs> John Brebbia. I don't know whether the White Sox acquired the beard or not, but they've got Well, the he Brebbia. grows it over the course of the season, I think. Okay. I like that. That's like, he, He's like a chia pet. That you you get and but <laughs> apparently he hates it. He doesn't <laughs> okay. like he doesn't like it. He doesn't uh-huh. like his own tradition. I don't think. Well, I can identify. I don't enjoy when I am more bearded either, but it happens sometimes. So other signings or quasi signings. Stop me if you've heard this before this winter, but the Dodgers reportedly have acquired someone, or it is uh, close to being official. Mm-hmm. Dodgers signing James Paxton. Yeah. A a Paxton pact for one year and 11 or 12 million-ish. I've seen conflicting figures. Yeah. 
So <laughs> this, I mean, the the Orioles were said to be eyeing James Paxton, right? Like James Paxton was the only starter in their price range. And no, the Dodgers have gone and gotten Paxton too. Obviously, they they had a need even after Glasnow, even after Yamamoto, even after future pitcher Otani, hopefully. There was a vacancy, theoretically, or at least a need for some depth. And when you sign Paxton to -hmm. fill a rotation spot, it's like, have you really filled that rotation spot, you know, like, do you're talking about James that way? So <laughs> I'm sorry. Rude. Look, I enjoy Big Maple myself, but I'm just saying, Big Maple. If you're signing him to to fill a spot, do you feel more confident that it is filled after you've acquired Paxson than before? I feel like not really very much, you know? It's like you have a hypothetical Paxton and you hope that you will have Paxton for part of the season, but... Dinger's Paxton. Yeah, realistically, how many starts have you actually acquired here? I, I hope for the best, right? But when you sign someone like that, I'm like, why not just keep going? You know, bring back Rich Hill and hopefully have him for part of a season. Please go get Kershaw, hopefully have him for part of a season. Just acquire all of the hurt or injured guys. You've got Glass now too. And just hope that you can piece together enough starts to get you through, right? Because you can only pencil these guys in for part of a season, and you're hoping that when they pitch, they will be effective, as Paxton was in 2023. But he's had every injury at some point. In fact, when he got shut down in September last year with knee inflammation, Red Sox manager Alex Cora said, we looked at pushing him back. I don't think it makes sense to push him. He's been through so much in his career. Yeah. <laughs> just the, the way that he put that. He's He's been through so much. Just take it easy on, on poor James Paxton. He's been through so much, but he really has physically. Yeah. I mean, elbow and shoulder and everything else, right? And then knee stuff to end the season, and he's in his mid-30s now. So what are you acquiring when you were acquiring James Paxton? You're acquiring the, the concept of James Paxton, the idea <laughs> of James Paxton. <laughs> it's it's just like, you know, the Red Sox surprisingly got 19 starts out of him in 2023. Right. He missed all of 2022. He made one start in 2021. He made five starts in 2020. So right. over the past few seasons, he has barely been available for most of them. So it's sort of like, you know, patching a rotation with someone who will then almost certainly need to be patched himself at some point. But but why not? You know, why not just wow. he's like good enough when he's healthy that if he happened to be healthy right. when October rolled around, right. you you might consider giving him a postseason start. Maybe. And that's what the Dodgers can count on, being in a position right. to give someone a postseason start. So it's really just insurance for the rest right. of the rotation. I don't think it precludes them signing Kershaw. Because you have to figure there's a good chance that by the time Clayton Kershaw is healthy and able to pitch, that Paxton or Glasnow or someone won't be, right? I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, I mean, it's like when when Brian Cashman got killed for basically saying about Giancarlo Stanton that he's going to get hurt at some point. And it's like, okay, maybe Andrew Friedman should not talk about James Paxton in the way that I'm 
currently speaking no, about him, but, but we can, tact. you know, that might be how he's thinking of James Paxton. Sure. And, and he might be thinking, okay, we'll pay him a little more than $10 million and maybe we'll get a half season out of him or something, and that's fine, you know? Like, yeah. if he pitches as well as he did last year, and and that's what you get, then okay, it's, it's probably worth it to a team like the Dodgers, but... <laughs> It's just, you know, it's an insurance if you then have to take out insurance immediately on the player who is providing the insurance. Wow. Wow, Ben. I just can't believe that you would talk about our guy, James. James Paxton was like an important part of the effectively wild like mythology for a while. Yeah, like, and he, also canon. the Ringer MLB show. It, it was always Zach Cram was a big fan of Paxton and Michael Bauman was a big fan of Lance Lynn. And I, yeah. I think Michael kind of won that one because yeah, he did. <laughs> Lynn has just been more available right. and also quite effective at times. But that's the thing. Paxton always quite tantalizing yeah. talent-wise and then always disappears at some point while recuperating from some sort of injury. He's been through so much. He's been, <laughs> He's been through so much. Um, I think that it's just the lens through which we should evaluate all of LA's roster moves is that like this is a team, uh, you know, we can put like the Rangers in this category because um, they've adopted an even more extreme version of this strategy. But it's like, you know, if you are a team that's counting on the fact that you're going to play October baseball, oh, we just get to say that this year. How delightful. Yes, regular season ends on September 29th. So oh, great. But if you think of yourself as a club that's going to play October baseball, you know, you're going to maybe do some of your roster architecting a little differently than than a club that is, say, like the Pirates, um, in some ways building for the trade deadline. It's just like mm -hmm. a really grim way to think about <laughs> roster construction, but is yeah. arguably what they're doing with some of these moves. Not all mm -hmm. of them, right? With a couple of their moves, that seems like it's the idea, right? To, yeah. To be it, able to flip guys. Previous off seasons too. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Do I think that uh, James Paxton is going to throw like 200 innings this season? I sure do not think that because that is not supported by recent facts. But I think that the idea that he could throw, you know, 120, 115, 100, 105, um, sprinkled, <laughs> keep, keep going. <laughs> you know, keep. sprinkled throughout the season, like that's. Mm -hmm. Uh, possible, you know, it is that possible. seems it is possible. Um, possible to me. Uh, keep uh, eagles away from him so that none of them <laughs> land on him. Because mm -hmm. um, I uh, don't want any injuries that way. Um, you know, I think the other important thing to keep in mind about the Dodgers and their payroll situation is that they seem to be in a very firm YOLO territory <laughs> in terms yeah. of the the competitive balance tax and their payroll. Mm -hmm. And so really the way that they strike me as building their team right now is constrained much more by how many roster spots they have than any real concern about payroll. They've already made the decision to sort of cross the Rubicon and pay a bunch of tax in service of putting a really good team on the field. And so I think that there is something freeing in that from a team building perspective, because again, then you're like, how am I, you know, these roster spots are precious. I only have 26 of them on the, you know, active big league roster, but how much it costs me to fill each individual one is sort of immaterial. So that 
seems like a cool place to be in. It's certainly mm-hmm. a, a better place to be in than, say, the situation that Pittsburgh's front office finds itself in. Mm-hmm. But And that's not to say that, like, there's no upper bound for L, for the Dodgers in terms of their payroll commitments. But as we've discussed on the pod, like the worst, arguably like the worst payroll spot to be is being like a little bit over one of the CBT thresholds, but not, you know, kind of consciously going over to accommodate the kinds of players you want. Like if you're going to pay the tax, commit to paying the tax and put the best possible team you can on the field rather than like accidentally peeking over one of those thresholds and going, whoops, I guess we got a bill coming due and we haven't put the the team we want together. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. Got to go get Kershaw now too, though. Gotta, oh my God. I'm going to feel gotta complete so, the set. Yeah. I'm going to feel, I'm really worried about it. Actually, this <laughs> mm-hmm. is a thought that I've had independently at multiple junctures this off season. I know we've talked about it, but I just like I'm really worried about. <laughs> yeah. I'm worried about him not getting to be part of this team that seems like it's gonna really go out there and just win a bunch of baseball games. It feels I don't know. It it's okay for there to be eras you know um in a franchise's history and i i know that they told otani that the last decade's basically been a failure but like the kershaw era of dodgers baseball which extends back further than a decade to be clear wildly successful as far as i'm concerned and his career Mm -hmm. within it hall of fame worthy Mm -hmm. um so you know it would be okay but i just would like it you know Think yeah. about think about it. He could come back as like a coach or something if he's Player, you know coach, pitcher coach. <laughs> if he gets to a point in the season where he's like, you know, the arm's just not doing what I needed to, they should bring him in in another capacity. And I know the, those spots are, you know, kind of precious. It's not like they're unlimited, but I just said that they don't care about money, so you know. We got an email from Patreon supporter Manu about Kershaw, who was inspired by our mercenary player scenario who signs with team after team and says, I think the way to make this scenario as realistic and fun as possible is clearly with a starting pitcher, and it would take a good one with availability issues. A free agent who, when he pitched, he's good, but in which teams are hesitant to invest. Also a pitcher who's already made money and may also prioritize time off. Clearly, Clayton Kershaw. So my question is, if Kershaw were to ask $1 million for a start, does any team buy? Can we make this work? And yeah, I think so. I, I don't think Kershaw would be inclined to do that, to enter an itinerant phase. It seems that he wants to be a Dodger or possibly a Ranger. But if he wanted to do this, any pitcher like this, if Paxton had wanted to do this, just go start by start, I think teams would pay a million per pop for sure. a good, healthy pitcher, right? Like that yeah. might be a way to do it. I mean, if you had Kershaw, for instance, the Dodgers paid him $20 million last year. They couldn't have realistically expected much more than 20 starts. I guess he gave them a, a few more than that, but you're probably not banking on more than that. So they basically were paying him at that rate, and maybe he gets a slight premium because he's a hero there or maybe not because it's hometown discount but if someone like that wanted to go 
team to team, start to start, and were willing to just go with the high bidder, whoever had the most acute need in their rotation at that time, or had the biggest game that week, whatever it was, right. then absolutely, I think you could do that. It, it would yeah. be worth it on a, a dollar per war basis if yeah. you did the calculation that way. Yeah, I think that that's right. But we want him to be a Dodger for sentimental reasons. <laughs> so other signings, I guess Joey Gallo just signed with Aww. the Nationals while we were speaking on a one-year, $5 million deal. I'm doing I'm doing hands. Hey! <laughs> yeah. I'm Italian. It's fine. I get to invoke that. Yeah. I, I've always enjoyed Joey Gallo as a player, also sort of as a personality. Yeah. Just, just had a soft spot for him since yes. he was in the minors, and I wrote about yeah. him for Grantland, and I was just fascinated by that extreme profile and can yep. this work, and, you know, it worked for a while. It yeah. hasn't worked as well lately, but teams are still running him out there, and I want him to continue to run out there just to test the limits, the outer bounds of baseball. So, sure, get Joey in a corner, have Joey Manessa the Joey's, my my pal's Joey's. Joey, can be at the corners for the Nationals. I love it. I think two things. I think that New York is a beautiful, thriving metropolis, a gem, you know, an important cultural center. And I think it's okay for people to not like living. <laughs> sure. It's important. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's not for everyone. Even people who like really love cities. This is not an, this is not an anti-urbanism take. This is just sometimes you're like, it's so expensive and the apartments are so small. Yep. Um, and so I, uh, I think it's fine to be a, you know, a big tall guy and say, hey, need to live somewhere else you know sure. and that's yeah. what part of that's part of what joey's done mm -hmm. yeah couple other things. Speaking of potentially available pitchers, we haven't really addressed the Roki Sasaki rumors mm. this offseason because the initial rumor, there was a report from Spinichi, the Japanese outlet, that he had requested to be posted this offseason. Yes. That was never corroborated. And no. from what I've read, it seems like the understanding is that if anything, he probably requested to be posted next offseason, not now. But there's still some question about whether that will happen. And it's really intriguing because he's the best young pitcher in the world, I would say. Certainly the best pitcher in Japan now that Yamamoto has left and was probably the best on a per-inning basis as it was. Just dominant nasty, lights out, untouchable, perfect game pitching pitcher, right? Just flamethrower, incredibly compelling pitcher, absolute phenom. And there is some question about when he'll be posted because he's still so young and he can't make very much money unless he were to wait a couple more years. And so right. that's been the understanding. He's 22 and a young 22. He turned 22 in November and so the understanding for a while was that he would wait, right? And we right. would not see him in MLP for a few more years. But there may be a secret contract clause. The reason that Otani was able to come over before he was 25 is that he negotiated that with the upon him fighters. He had a lot of leverage. Obviously, there were MLB teams interested in him, and he was reluctant at first to be drafted. And so he did accept being drafted 
with the condition that right. you could basically request to be posted and that the fighters would do that. And so they did. And because Sasaki was also a young phenom and had MLB teams interested in him, there is some suspicion that he may also have some similar contract clause and that he might exercise it having played on the WPC roster and seen his teammates on that team go right. over and have such success that he might want to do that, right? And so if he does then, of course, he would not stand to make very much money because of the international signing rules. And right. thus, his team would also not stand to make very much money, the right. Chibolote Marines. And so the implication would be, well, after 2026, then he'll be 25 years old, which would mean three more seasons in Japan. But there's a growing belief that it might be next winter, which would make two consecutive winters when the best pitcher available for yeah. your free agency has been from MPB. But in this case, even though he might be in line for a Yamamoto-esque contract, right. because of his youth, he would not get that. He would right. get the Otani kind of contract he'd be making league minimum initially. And the Sasaki sweepstakes, assuming he has a solid 2024 NPB season, will just be wild. I mean, everyone will want that guy. It will be the same sort of every team making its pitch and presentation to him, yeah. right? And mystery about what he wants and where he wants to go. The thing is that it would kind of contradict precedent in NPB because there's been sort of an informal understanding that in order to be posted before you have nine years, that's when you are eligible for international free agency. And so there's some NPB teams like the SoftBank Hawks, Kodai Senga's team, who have just a no posting policy right. and they will not post a player until after they have nine years of service. Others will post you earlier but it's sort of been understood that you have to have accomplished a lot by that point. Right. Maybe won a championship, won awards, right? You have to sort of have fulfilled your potential and shown that you have nothing more to prove over there before you're then granted the capacity to be posted. Whereas Sasaki to this point hasn't really done that, right? There's still a sense that he has more in the tank. Like he right. hasn't hit his ceiling yet, at least from a durability and health perspective. He hasn't had the full season where he's been available all the time. And so it would kind of maybe ruffle some feathers if he were to insist upon being posted over his team's objections and at great cost to his team. And some traditionalists might be upset about that and it might have effects and ramifications for other contracts and other NPB players and posting precedents, et cetera. But from an MLB fan's perspective, we might be talking about Sasaki 24-7 when next offseason rolls around, if this is true, if there's some fire here where there is currently smoke. Here's the problem. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not a problem. I think it's yeah. fine, but it's going to make the discourse unbearable mm -hmm. next offseason. So what you're essentially saying, Ben, is that you will have a very young, very talented player whose market is artificially constrained by the international <laughs> bonus system, who yeah. will be picking amongst teams, not because of the amount of money that they can <laughs> offer him, because there's yeah. a cap on that, but because of 
the culture of winning and because of hmm. a great player dev system and a front. <laughs> he's just going to be a Dodger. <laughs> There's a, every chance that he might I mean, just be a Dodger. He might, to be clear, he might fall in love with any number of major league cities. You know, mm-hmm. he might decide that he loves Skyline Chile. I don't know. Like, I don't know the young man. I don't know what's important to him beyond, um, you know, the things that we might uh, assume about a professional athlete and their desire to win and compete. But I bet if one were to take odds on the teams that would be appealing to him, that the Dodgers would seemingly be at the tippy top. And I think that's true independent of the Japanese player contingent that they have now, right? Like mm-hmm. even even if it <laughs> did, they literally have Yamamoto and Otani. Can, oh like, can you imagine if they just had like the entire Samurai Japan WBC rotation? It would be so and cool. Tyler Glasnow and whoever else. Oh my else. god! <laughs> right, because Otani will be pitching yeah. again. Holy Moses! Oh my goodness. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> Uh, I know that it bothers some folks, and I'm sure that if you're like a hardcore fan of another NL West team, you're just so sick to death of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I I really do get it, but I'm sorry I can't look at it as anything other than so stupid cool. <laughs> oh, that team's going to be so good. It's going to be so good, and they still felt like they needed to sign James Paxton. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Yeah, I don't know. Share the wealth a little bit at that point, maybe. Let, let Absolutely some, not. Some other teams I, have no. some Japanese superstars. Absolutely not. No. Wait, <laughs> no, no, no. Mm-mm. You know what? Um, there, is, there, there will be plenty of opportunity for other teams to make their case. And if he finds those cases compelling, maybe, maybe he's the kind of guy who wants to strike out on his own. So maybe he would like... Rather than being one of the um, the many um, members of Samurai Japan on the Dodgers, he wants to be able to like do his own thing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. him, Ben. You know, nope. I don't know what matters to the, to the young man. Like he'll have to tell us that. Mm-hmm. But he'll probably just end up being a Dodger. <laughs> 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 so I, I think he'll probably just be a Dodger. <laughs> <laughs> oh god you know it's fine because my closest big league team just plays in the same division so mm-hmm. it, it, you know i if he if he's not going to be a, a diamondback and he's not going to be a mariner he should sign with another nl west it doesn't have to be the dodgers i just want to be no. able to watch the guy in person so yeah let the giants have one come on okay sure sure yeah yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> all right Couple last items here. You probably saw the news about Alex Blandino. And no, you would not have expected that there would be news about Alex Blandino that would I don't know what you're talking about. rise to the level of podcast banter. Okay, well, I'm breaking the news about Alex Blandino, which is that he's converting to pitcher okay. like Charlie Culberson. Great. But the <gasps> unique spin is, or I guess oh. the lack of spin, is that he's a knuckleballer now. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, this is fantastic. This is Great. my favorite, right? So oh, Alex yeah. Bandino, known to some as a Reds multi-position type over the last few years, though not since 2021. But he's had some pitching experience in the majors. Uh, he's thrown five games, not with a great amount of success, but he threw four games as a pitcher, you know, just position player pitcher in 2021. 
He did throw a knuckleball on the mound. I remember a pitching ninja gif of his knuckleball looked like a legitimate pitch. And now he is converting. He is uh, trying to be a full-time knuckleballer. So I love this because this is sort of a storied tradition. Not that it's like worked out many times, but right. you always have had players with a knuckleball in their back pocket. You know, players mess around with knuckleballs. You hear about so-and-so's got a good knuckleball and they'll show it off to their teammates. And sometimes you'd see a clip of someone throwing it. And every now and then someone will really try to make a go of it. And I love the late career knuckleball conversion. Obviously, with knuckleballs being as endangered as they are, I welcome anyone trying to throw a knuckleball. He's 31. That's young for a knuckleballer. I hope he makes it. I hope someone signs him to do this. I think this would be a lot of fun. So I wish yeah. you well, Alex Blandino. Keep keep the knuckleball alive. In fact, he doesn't have to be signed by someone to do it because he signed a minor league deal with the Reds in November. Okay. And so he is reportedly going to be at double A. I don't think he has an invitation to spring training, at least not now to major not league camp. Yet. So he's going to be faith. playing his trade in the minors and I hope it works out for him. Yeah. Oh, that's such fun news. Thank you for mm -hmm. telling me that because I had yeah. missed that entirely. And that's, yeah. that's sure something. He, he has hit 90 on the mound. So he has okay. a, a credible for a knuckleballer fastball. Sure, so he, yeah, yeah. He can, he can dial it up there. It could happen. Oh, man. How exciting. Yeah, because it, it looked like the knuckleball <laughs> might actually be extinct because we went a while without a legitimate knuckleball, at least thrown by an actual pitcher. And then mm. we had Matt Waldron, fortunately, Great. for the Padres this past season, who's not a full-time knuckleballer. He's he's a partial, he's a part-timer, but he throws a fair number of knuckleballs. And, you know, it seems to be a pretty good one. And he was <laughs> moderately effective, you know? He was, yeah. he was rosterable. So yeah. you have him keeping the flame alive. And you have, you know, a few other people kicking around at various levels of professional baseball. But, yeah, it's a rare breed. It's always been a rare breed. It's an even rarer breed these days. But it's always the dream for someone. It's always not necessarily plan B, but like plan C or D. <laughs> if everything right. else goes wrong, break glass in case of emergency. I've been messing around with this knuckleball, you know. Yep. Why not? Why not try to make that work? I think that that is just delightful. And it's not mm -hmm. that it's gone extinct. It's just called the death pitch now. It's just <laughs> yeah, the exactly. Death ball. Right. Maybe the knuckleball needs to rebrand. It needs That's, a rebranding. Yeah. Right. We need to give it some cool, sabermetric, cutting edge, pitch designy name to erase any stigma surrounding the effectiveness of the knuckleball in people's minds. This is, yeah, the, the sweeper, the death ball. Let's death rechristen ball. the knuckleball as knuckleball. something else. Yeah. yeah Start fresh. Just, you got to, uh, I don't know. I'm bad at naming things. This is why mm -hmm. I don't write fiction, you know, yeah. or at least science fiction, because you got to come up with nouns. Like, you got to yeah. make up nouns. That seems impossible. We had Mickey Janice on the podcast back in yep. 2021 when he briefly got to the big leagues and threw some knuckleballs. He's a, a real true blue knuckleballer, but right. he hasn't been back since. I made the case years ago in a Ringer article that 
we might be in for a knuckleball renaissance at some point if we get robot umps. I, I made the case that the knuckleball would actually be advantageous because sometimes it is not called in the pitcher's favor. It's hard to hit. It's hard to call as well. And so right. maybe a full robot ump situation would actually benefit knuckleballs, knuckleballers. So mm. we'll see. But yeah, you know. No I one just, found you persuasive. Though. <laughs> that's I guess upsetting. Not, but we haven't had the full robo zone, which again right, I'm fine true. with. But yeah, but if we no, do at boo. some point, and yeah. and also while we're doing little blasts from the past here, not past blasts, but just things that we used to talk about. It's been a while, but Williams Estadio. There was a, a highlight of Williams, or really oh. a low light, a low light in this case, but. Made me nostalgic for the days. I almost when... messaged you <laughs> while I was watching it because I was yeah. like, "Oh boy!" But then it was it was a low light, and it so was. I, I didn't it, bother. It you was with charming. It. it was endearing. It's yeah, been a while yeah, yeah. since we've seen yeah. Williams. He's been over in Japan. You know, we, he hasn't been as visible, but he's been playing in Lidom, right in in the finals in right. the Dominican Republic, and there was a, a play where he did not cover himself in glory. So the, he's had the, a couple of outfield misplays. <laughs> I mean, there's one that's going around, but that is not the only one I have witnessed from our friend uh, yeah. in this Leadom postseason. As an aside, Leadom's postseason goes on for a century. Good yes. grief. They've been playing postseason ball for like three months now, it feels like. Right. And William Sestadio, he did not actually cost his team the game. So, so he was playing for the Estrellas, right? Yeah. And yes, there was a play where he was <laughs> out in right field and just, you know, could you call it a bobble? I don't know that it even rose to the level of a bobble. He was covering a lot of ground to get there, but, you know, he made contact. He didn't whiff. It wasn't like an Olay, but it he just, he dropped the ball. It won't cost his team anything in the long run because they ended up winning this game. This this enabled the Tigers to come back in this particular game and tie it, but then they lost to the Estrella. So the outcome of the series is still hanging in the balance and up in the air, much like the ball that Williams Estadio dropped. And, you know, it was just nice to see our boy out there again. Sometimes he's sort of embarrassing himself out there in a charming way. Sometimes he is doing something surprisingly impressive out there. But he's always doing something that is eye-catching and visually arresting, whatever it is, whether it's good or bad. And he was playing in the Venezuelan Winter League. And, you know, he, he was up to his old tricks. He struck out four times in 198 plate appearances, which is a cool 2% strikeout rate. So he still got it, it being his contact rate and not really that much else, but he still got that. And this is not his first time in the outfit. I mean, he has played out there in Lidon before and in various winter leagues. And of course, he memorably played center field for the Twins in that very strange game, right? That has happened. And he played, you know, a little bit in the outfield for the Twins in the majors too. So it has happened. He has made some nice plays. I saw one on Twitter from like 2014 when he robbed a home run in in winter ball in the outfield. So, you know. Well, and he had he had one of his misplays this run, and I don't think this is the one that you're talking about. Like, he almost made a really great play on the ball, but then mm-hmm. he did it, and then it was really <laughs> bad. So, it's it's an adventure out there with him, man. Yeah. Um, but I think our friends, uh, I don't, 
remember or maybe i just don't even know which of them tweeted this but i think from from the suspicious account either jake mm-hmm. or jordan noted that like he has played the outfield a yep. fair bit like this yep. is not new territory for him even if it often looks like it yes <laughs> yes exactly well it was nice to have him back in my life if only via a fleeting highlight nice to see he's still yeah. making news one way or another <laughs> yeah and Last thing, we got one final follow-up to our discussion about the mercenary player, but specifically the form of that where one guy has a grudge against a team and just wants to sign against whoever that team is playing over and over to play against that team the entire time. In this scenario, it was like Otani deciding that he had it out for the Reds and he just wanted to oppose the Reds all season. Someone reminded me that Kyle Farnsworth had vowed revenge against the Mets back in 2014 because he didn't like how the Mets handled them, but he never got to face them again, sadly, because that was his last season in the majors. But I I would have liked to see the the Kyle Farnsworth revenge tour against the Mets. Remember when Kyle Farnsworth randomly got like ridiculously jacked? Yeah. And it was like, what is this guy on? What is up with the jackedness? Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. So I'd be worried if I were the Mets, but he's not pitching anymore, at least. Anyway, got an email from Dan and maybe a couple other people pointed this out in the Discord group. In your discussion about a player signing to play whichever team played against the team that had slighted him, you didn't really get into what facing the same people over and over and over again would do to his stats. Sure, advanced stats, at least some of them, can correct for the strength of your opponent, but would a hitter get so familiar with the other team's rotation that they far outperform their base talent, or would a pitcher tailor their repertoire to the opponent's weaknesses? Can't any major leaguer identify a specific pitcher type they do better against than would be expected and position themselves to face that type of pitcher in one-sixth or more of their at-bats using this strategy? Of course, always hitting against Colorado would juice your stats because course field, but this way seems obvious enough we just mentally discount their achievements so that's the question who would gain the upper hand in that scenario if the player is playing the same team all season now if it's otani and he's playing two ways right then he gets a benefit and and also a drawback in that as a hitter he gets to see those same pitchers over and over again but those same hitters get to see him over and over again on the mound but for a, a more normal player it would it would be bad, right? Or or who would it be bad for? Does it even out? You know, you'd you'd get not the times through the order effect, but a times through the season effect, like a, a multiplier familiarity effect over the course of the season. Oh boy. Which way do I think this would go? Hmm. Yeah, I'd say that it's not going to go well for a pitcher. It doesn't within a single game or over maybe multiple games for a reliever or in this case for a starter too. You're getting more reps against that pitcher collectively as the team. Like if the starting pitcher is facing the same team for 32 starts in a season, then all of those guys are, you know, like the whole team is getting to see him so many times, whereas he's facing a collective benefit. Yeah. He's, he's facing maybe different hitters each time and only seeing them a a couple or a few times in each game. So maybe there's, yeah, kind of a compounding familiarity effect there. But if you're, if you're a hitter who gets to then face that pitching staff but then yeah. <laughs> those pitchers yeah i don't know like each would be able to exploit 
the other's weaknesses more, which was, you know, the earlier days of baseball when there weren't as many teams and you didn't have interleague play. It's just eight teams and everyone's facing each other over and over again. Or, you know, when we were with the Stompers in the Pacific Association in some indie ball leagues, you only have a handful of teams, right? Right. And you might not have the same caliber of advanced scouting and data that we have now in video and everything. And you wouldn't have in earlier eras of baseball, but you would have had a book on those players that would have been fairly informative just from seeing them over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Dan. Well done, Dan. All right. That will do it for today. Congratulations to the new Hall of Famers we recorded before the Hall of Fame voting results were announced. Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, all in. Come on down. We will have some Hall of Fame coverage on our next episode. Maybe do an interview, discuss the Hall of Famers elect, bring you some Cooperstown content of some kind. Always nice to have multiple guys get the nod. Also always nice to have support from our listeners on Patreon, which you can provide by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Wayne Teeger, David Landy, J.P. Bender, D.S. Boynton, and David Saliba. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, layoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships, prioritized email answers, the satisfaction of walking around in the world, knowing that you're helping prop up a podcast like Effectively Wild. All of that can be yours. Check out patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. But even if you aren't, you can contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. Now, in addition to our regular outro theme, written and recorded by Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, you are now hearing the opening strains of a Death Cab song, We Looked Like Giants, performed so professionally that you might not even notice that this is not the original Death Cab version. It is a Death Cab cover performed by listener Corey Brent, who has turned We Looked Like Giants into an effectively wild theme. You'll be able to tell as soon as the lyrics kick in. I have shared this cover with friend of the show, Ben Gibbard, and he called it incredible in all caps with three exclamation points. I particularly like the line where he changed and we'd learn how our bodies worked into as we learn how Otani works. You're about to hear what I mean. Take it away, Corey. Come on, join the celebration